everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, and getting your life back. Uh, I'm your host. My name is Kevin. I am a licensed clinician specializing in OCD and anxiety spectrum disorders. Uh, thank you all so much for joining me today. If you're new to the show, go over to fearcastpodcast.com. I have all the episodes there. I suppose you can also go to iTunes or or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever else you get your podcasts and uh, probably download uh, them there. Uh, after all, you are listening to the show, so I suppose you have found at least this one. So wherever you found this one, there's probably more. So keep digging. But um, uh, thank you all for joining me. So this is a question and answer based podcast where you, the listener, get to email me, the host therapist, questions that you might have about hosting anxiety treatment. Again, this is not just OCD, it's anxiety. So it's social anxiety, it's specific phobias, so like snakes and spiders and heights and bears and stuff like that. Um, it, it can be generalized anxiety, right? How do you deal with anxiety about money, about your health, about your relationships, that sort of stuff? And of course, we talk about OCD a lot. But um, if you have questions about this other stuff, feel free to go over to fearcastpodcast.com. Go over to the submit a question link, and you can submit me a question. And I read all of them. And uh, I will consider them and I will put them up, likely speaking, on a future episode where you can hear my answers to them. So thank you all for trusting me uh, with your questions. By the way, I know that uh, it, it takes a lot to email some random person on the internet uh, uh, these questions. But again, I do appreciate that you've, you've entrusted me with, uh, with this very uh, vulnerable information, this uh, vulnerable care. So uh, I, I do appreciate that. So everybody, this episode is coming out a little late. I've gotten into a bad habit of this. I do apologize. Now, the, now my excuse for this one is because, well, the entire family got COVID. So we are spending the entire week at home. I could not get to my office. Uh, slash, I did not go to my office uh, to get my podcasting equipment because, well, there were people there. Now, I will say this. So my wife, my daughter, and my son, my, my son is uh, six months, my daughter is three years, uh, and my, my wife is more than that. But um, uh, they all tested, well, I guess my son didn't, but my, my wife and daughter, they both tested positive for COVID. I did not. So we were all in the same house. I was not wearing a mask. The theory was, well, I've been with these weirdos for a week anyways. If they have it, I probably have it. So we all have it. I was feeling a little snorky anyways, which is my word of saying sinus, congest sinus congestion. It just sounds like snorky, doesn't it? Anyways, so I was feeling a little snorky. So I just assume I felt I, I, I got it and it was a light case because after all, I got vaccinated. And in case anyone's wondering, vac vaccinations work. Now, I know some of you out there might be saying, but Kevin, your wife got COVID. Yeah, she did. And she had a vaccine. And you know what? It was a very mild case. It was very mild. So it could have been so much worse had she not gotten that vaccination. So uh, I will say, thank God, thank science for vaccinations. So if you are a doctor, if you are a nurse, if you are someone who is uh, uh, doing those or uh, giving those to folks, thank you for your work. Um, go get yours. If you have not gotten one, go get it. That This is a PSA that I'm all of a sudden throwing into this. This was not the plan. My entire plan of bringing this up was to apologize for having a late episode. It got off the rails. Anyways, so I could not record. I did not record. So here we are. 
a week late, so I do apologize. But I'm working on other episodes, um, and uh, and today everybody is going to be one of those lovely question and answer based episodes. But you know what? This one's going to be a little bit different, as per usual, because I like to mix things up. This episode is going to be focusing just on one person's questions. So Lynn has emailed me uh, a question or two, and they also reached out to me via Instagram. And by the way, I'm over at the Instagrams. Um, I am Fearcast Podcast over there. I post funny memes. Every- well. I think they're funny memes. I don't know if you people think they're funny, but I think they're funny. So um, you can check me out there. But um, some people will question, send me questions over there, and, and that's that. That is fine, provided I get some uh, uh, consent uh, for posting them here. Uh, obviously, for education purposes, I'm not this person's therapist. I'm not any of y'all's therapist. I'm just a therapist who's answering some questions. Um, so the um, so these questions are coming from Lynn. Um, she has, she has indeed given me uh, permission to answer these questions. So I'm going to go over several of her questions. And you know what? One of the reasons that I'm answering her questions above other ones that have sent me because you know what she did? She sent me an audio. So if you guys want to 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 cut the line and get to the top of the list, send me audio of your question. Send me your voice of your question. Uh, so you can record it. Obviously, you can record it via uh, uh, via the Instagram app. You just send me a message and you press the little record button there, and it will send me a little message there. Um, that you can also uh, record a message through things like Zoom or through Skype. If you just record that audio and email me that audio at uh, you can send it to Kevin at calocd.com. I know I, I think I have questions at fearcastpodcast.com, but it might be questions or it might be question. I don't know. So just send it over to Kevin at calocd.com. I'm so worried that because that's my work email that I'm going to get a bajillion emails. But if I get a bajillion emails, that means that I got a bajillion emails with questions uh, with audio in them. And that's great because your voice is so much more interesting than my voice that I want this to feel like it's your show because after all, it is. So, uh, this is uh, Lynn's attempt to get to the top of the line, and guess what? She did. So, uh, But she also asked a number of other questions, so they might be all over the place. I'm going to try to answer them as best I can. But uh, thank you, Lynn, for um, uh, sending me those questions, and also thank you uh, to her for spurring me on to record um, this week because she reached out on Monday when I typically uh, send uh, or typically post uh, the episode and she said hey are you still doing this because there's no episode and I was just like yeah I'm, I'm just I'm sorry everyone's at the house everyone's here and since my wife and I are both therapists we did sessions from home but someone had to watch the kid because we were not going to have my in-laws go and be around you know diseased children so you know she was in session and then quickly she had to run out of that session I had to run in and set up my computer and do my work and then do a session or two and then switch out and work with the kids and they're crying on the other end of the door my my clients are like what's happening over there I'm like I don't know COVID is making everyone go crazy so anyways all that being said, Lynn, thank you for um, uh, spurring me on and uh, thank you for these questions. So um, without further ado, everybody, here are Lynn's questions. Hi, Kevin. My question is if you have BDD with OCD, if you get plastic surgery or any type of surgery, will that actually fuel the BDD or will it fix the BDD is is my question. 
I hope this makes sense. Thank you so much for your podcast. I think you're awesome. Thank you so much. All right, so this is a really great, great question, especially uh, as it pertains to BDD. So BDD, everybody, is is body dysmorphic disorder. Uh, it is a anxiety and kind of anxiety tangent related uh, uh, obsession. It is, it is. You can kind of think about it as it is OCD about one's physical appearance, and it's this, it's this, uh, it's this cycle where someone has this misperception about the way that they look, and they believe that something about themselves is grotesque is disgusting is awful and it's not like the sort of you know vanity that you, that the average person has where you go like ah man you know I'm a little overweight i wish i could like tighten this up here I wish this was bigger I wish that was smaller like that sort of stuff that we all have this is this is to a clinical level where there's this perception that, that there's something about them themselves again that is just disgusting that is that it, that needs to be dealt with and and oftentimes compulsions can uh, take the form of constantly looking themselves in the mirror. It can be uh, 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 maybe even avoiding mirrors. It can be asking people what they think about the X, Y, and Z part of themselves. For some, it can be going to the gym uh, excessively. For some, it can be excessive dieting. It can be applying makeup, uh, and this is usually applying excessive makeup or extreme makeup. And for some people, uh, some people will will resort to doing some type of surgery to correct whatever their perceived flaw is. Now, um, a, a, a classic example that, that I think everybody might, be, might know of, you can think about Michael Jackson. Uh, so, M- Michael Jackson, if you look at him in the 70s, he looked very different than how he looked in the uh, in the late 90s and the 2000s, right? Um, so his his nose just kept getting smaller and smaller. Everyone's going, where's that nose going? So it it is it is very likely. I, I haven't heard of any of any uh, specific diagnosis. So that, so I I may be wrong. So don't sue me for libel, I suppose. But um, he he is an example of someone who most likely was very concerned about his nose and how it looked and how he thought it made him look. So he he was able to resort to surgery uh, to try to get that corrected to a point where he felt that he was or that his nose was not terrible. Now, again, if I'm wrong about that diagnosis, I, I, I apologize. But um, that's an example of someone who 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 could echo or reflect someone who may resort to surgeries for body dysmorphic disorder. Now, if you are interested in learning more about body dysmorphic disorder, uh, I did an episode, uh, a couple episodes back with Chris Tronsden, uh, and uh, he is a uh, BDD expert, and that would be a great episode to listen to to get more information about this. But Lynn, to your question, um, so you so you said kind of two things, and I might be, um, I might be uh, splitting hairs here, but that's, that's kind of what I do. So, you said, "Will get, essentially, will getting surgery fix the BDD?" At the very core, it sounded like if you get surgery, uh, will it fix the BDD? The short answer and the the dis- definitive answer I will say is no. If the surgery you are you are planning on doing or would like to do is explicitly to try to correct something that you have been diagnosed for BDD for, for it is something that you are obsessing about, something that you view as grotesque, that you are 
are obsessing, obsessing about meaning compulsively ruminating and checking, uh, and, and are, it, it reflects kind of that OCD cycle. Um, if the attempt is to get surgery to just uh, finally get rid of or to deal with that thing, my answer is no. That surgery will not make that any better. In fact, I will I will bet pretty much everything I own on that surgery will likely make it worse because it will be different. And now the only way to fix that is more and more surgery. And the more surgery you get, the more off it may appear. So because and ultimately that surgery isn't taking care of the the real issue, which is needing to accept and tolerate the 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 way that you look or the way that this person looks, whoever Lynn you're referring to. Um, now you you said what about getting any surgery? Well, so this is my splitting hairs. So any surgery. Well, if that surgery is something that a, that a medical professional, a medical doctor, is advising you get for health purposes and is not cosmetic in nature or not explicitly cosmetic in nature, um, then uh, then I would say that's that would be something that's you know likely fine. If it's if you're getting a surgery to help a health issue, well, sometimes we get surgeries, right? I've had a bunch of surgeries myself, and they've greatly helped, but. And this is this is also something to then work out with a with a, a therapist or a, a professional who knows something about BDD. Sometimes some people can come up with I'll, I'll just use the word excuse, but it can also be the way that we justify having the way that we justify compulsions. Some folks I could imagine would justify some type of surgery by saying, "Oh, it's going to be medically helpful," but gosh, you know what? It's also going to make me look better. Right, so I've certainly heard of folks who have had a a, uh, a nose uh, kind of septum uh, alignment. Now uh, that that's something that I know people have done. I know people who have done this. Um, and what the idea is, is that if you have a deviated septum in your nose, and the, the septum is that that cartilage uh, that separates your two nostrils inside your head. Um, so sometimes, and a lot of times, it can be crooked. It can be off to one side, so one side can get more impacted than the other. Um, I think I've had this surgery done. I've had two sinus surgeries, and I don't know what happened up there. They just did stuff, um, but I feel better. Anyways, so this the the septum getting that straightened. It, it's it's not cosmetic ultimately because it's you're not going to see it. It's all fully up in your snout. But it's it, some people will argue that correcting it will will be of benefit to them. But they'll which it might. But you know what? They'll also say, gosh, you know, while you're there, why don't you just make this bridge part a little slimmer? Or why don't you add a little bit here, you know, while you're there, right? So that might be one way somebody may argue that doing this is going to be a benefit. And, you know, I, I, I can imagine there can be other surgeries that people might come up with, um, you know, doing Botox, doing, um, working on somebody's eyes, working on someone's, you know, ears, if you want a detached or attached lobes, right? Somehow making the argument that that is also going to correct, I don't know, the way your sunglasses fit on your face or the way that you hear or something, something to that effect. Now, this is just wild speculation, but we all know that OCD and anxiety and BDD can pull 
pull our thoughts in a lot of different directions. So if you are on the fence about that, and if you are in your heart of hearts, uh, uh, well, no, not even in your heart of hearts, if you are questioning whether or not you are wanting this surgery because of a genuine medical issue or because of the appearance, talk to a therapist about that and really process that with them before you jump down the surgery rabbit hole. So long story short, no, surgery will not fix BDD. I don't care what anybody tells you. I don't care what anybody on the internet tells you. It will not. But process these further with a therapist for these other caveats. So, uh, Lynn, thank you so much. And let's get on to your next questions. All right, so Lynn's next question is, from your experience, how do you deal with the discomfort OCD brings? I get that ache in the pit of my stomach like a sinking feeling, and it causes a lot of emotions like grief, guilt, and shame, especially surrounding my main obsession related to real event. It seems like the feeling is constant and unrelenting. And I hear this from a lot of OCD sufferers. And non-OCD sufferers say, because you didn't let it go, and that's not helpful either. If I could have, I would have. OCD seems to ruin the good things in life. So, Lynn, you tapped on what what is a giant pet peeve of mine, which is just you just gotta let it go. Just let it go, right? You got all these you know these issues from the past, and you've got uh, uh, you're you got these anxieties and these worries and these problems. Man, you just gotta let them go, right? So. Now, here's the, here's the problem and in, in the, the, I don't know, probably two-sided nature of this job is that I, I, I'm complaining about it and then I'm about to do something where I'm essentially going to describe letting it go. But that being said, here's the problem with when people say you just got to let it go. What does that mean? What is the mechanism of letting it go? What's the end goal of letting it go? When you let it go, what are you doing? Are you not doing something? Because it sounds like this mystical sort of thing where all of a sudden you just kind of close your eyes and you just drag the problem file into the trash folder and press clear file and then that problem is gone or you take the problem and you go to the side of the road somewhere in the mountains or maybe in a tundra somewhere and you open the car door and you say go on and when it stays you get out of the car and you yell go on get out of here you're not wanted here and then it just it just sadly slinks off into the into the night is that what it means to let it go? Because I don't know what the hell it means then. So anyways, um, that in my family is what we call white fanging somebody. And I think that's what everybody calls white fanging. Because if you haven't seen the movie White Fang, I pretty much just ruined it for you. So that happens at the end. Anyways, um, if you want to know about how Old Yeller ends as well, which is, I think, a hundred year old movie by now, I can tell you that. But it's also equally sad. So, all right, Lynn. Your main question is, how do you deal with the discomfort OCD brings? So this is a great question. So my main point is essentially going to be this. If you're doing something to try to control the feeling to eliminate or get rid of or destroy or neutralize or ignore that feeling, you're going to feel it more. You're going to feel it more. Now, there are things that we can do that are going to help redirect our attention or to help us to 
ultimately get bored with and get engrossed in something else and turn our attention towards something else. But if you're trying to do something to get rid of that feeling and to not feel that pit in your stomach feeling or the sinking sensations or all of that of the anxiety or related to the anxiety, then you're likely doing compulsions. I'm going to say you are doing compulsions and those things ultimately won't be helpful because when we try to suppress a feeling, we just feel it more, right? It's like, you know, if you're, if you're firmly saying, I just don't want to be sad and you do everything you can to not be sad and you try to do happy things sometimes some and the only purpose of doing happy things is so that you don't feel sad it's that you get mad because now you're trying to do something happy but you're still feeling sad and now you're feeling frustrated that the thing that you're doing isn't helping and now you're sad it's just turned into mad and just turns into a big cycle to that to that point there's a great video on something called the um the struggle switch and it's a concept from acceptance and commitment therapy if you google struggle switch act I don't know, something like that. Uh, oh, and, uh, probably Russ Harris. Probably Russ Harris. I think Russ Harris. Or Stephen Hayes. I don't know, either one of those. And then you go to uh, you go to YouTube. There's this little cartoon uh, that uh, that has one of them, and uh, it will uh, it's it, it it walks you through what the struggle switch is. But I essentially, just described what the struggle switch was. All right. So back to your question: How do you deal with the discomfort OCD brings? First and foremost is you make space for it. You acknowledge that in that moment, your body and brain are, are, are coordinating and conspiring against you to give you a sensation. There's something that you experienced or thought that your brain all of a sudden was dangerous or scary. So it produced this fight or flight. Now, in this context, we might say it's a false fight or flight response, but it still produces the same emotional experience as fight or flight. So you felt that bad feeling. Now, when we get that bad feeling, that's okay. But when we treat it like it's bad, when we treat it like, oh my gosh, that thought or that experience or that feeling is dangerous or is a sign of something dangerous, our brain goes, see, we knew it. We knew it was dangerous, Lynn. That's why you're getting this feeling. That's why we sent out these hormones, these feelings, these sensations, so that you would do something about it. And because you did something, it confirms that. So now, whenever we have that thought, feeling, the images, sensation, urges, whatever it is, we're going to give you that feeling again because we got your back, Lynn. We're here for you. So that's why they're there. But the more that you confirm it through your action, through your avoidance, the more you're going to feel that. So what do you do to deal with the discomfort OCD brings? Nothing. We don't do anything with it. We treat it as if it is a false alarm. We treat it as if it means nothing because it does. You've told yourself a thousand times that it means nothing, so now it's time to act like it, which means think about what are the things that you are doing in, in your attempt to get rid of it. Are you trying to convince yourself that you shouldn't be feeling it? Are you desperately trying to not feel it by doing some other action? Sometimes those things are going to be unhelpful and only makes it worse. One thing that we can do in the attempt to let it go is, and let it go and deal with that feeling, is to not hold on to it. Now, 
letting it go, I think what people say is you let it go and then all of a sudden dis disappears, right? But when we are going to not hold on to it, that means we're not going to turn our, we're not going to hold our attention on it or hold this quote problem right in front of our face the whole time and just turn and just like ruminate about how terrible it feels and how awful it feels and how, how, how the, the sinking feeling and that feeling of guilt and shame and all those other things, right? Instead, we're, we're not going to place our attention on that. We're going to shift our attention towards something else. Now, some people will argue that turning your attention toward something else is compulsive and a, a inappropriate distraction. The problem is, is that when you say, well, don't think about blank or, or stop the rumination about blank, it leaves this vacuum of attention. And likely speaking, your brain is just going to go right back to that. Now, if we try to then get engrossed and focus on something that we actually enjoy or that's that's even marginally more meaningful to us, likely speaking, our brain is we're going to give our brain the opportunity to get involved with that and to let go for it to let go of the attention and to turn off that fight or flight response. It takes some time and it takes some trust. Your brain needs to learn, or you and your brain need to work together to trust that that feeling will go away. Now, I'll say this, Lynn, it always has, and it always will. And then it'll come back, and then it'll go away, and it'll come back, but it's not there permanently. It's this fluctuated thing, but we need to let it fluctuate out, right? So I like this idea. I mean, so there, there's, this, there's this idea of like, if you're taking a beach ball and like trying to hold it underwater, it takes all this effort. And then if, once it slips, it like erupts out. Because um, it takes a lot of work to try to suppress a feeling, right? But I, I kind of like this idea. So let's say, you know, let's say you, if you have a dog or a cat and you hold on to that cat, right? And that dog or that cat wants to try to go away. Oh, maybe this is a better example. You're holding this dog and you're holding on real tight. And you say, dog, go away. And you're going like, why isn't this dog going away? Well, Lynn, it's because you're holding on to that dog as tightly as you can. But you're saying, hey, dog, go away. And you hold on to it. Now, that dog is one, confused, and two, if you're holding on to that, meaning your attention is on, your attention and energy is on that dog, yeah, the dog's not going to go anywhere, and the dog's really moving around because the dog's trying to figure out why you won't let it, let it go away, even though you're telling it to go away. That little dog's confused. Now, when we say let it go, if we let, move, remove our hands from that dog, now that do and then we say, dog, go, right? Uh, that's even a bad example. Let's say we just say nothing. We let go of the dog and the dog just sits next to us. Now, that dog may immediately run when we are no longer fighting with it to hold on to it. It may just run. The dog also may not. The dog also may just like hang out next to you for a little bit. But if you know anything about dogs, that dog's going to get bored with you and that dog's going to go away all on its own accord. And that's what we want to do with these thoughts. Instead of holding on to it, we want to release our grip on it. We want to release our attention grip on it. And we create space to allow that dog, allow that feeling to be there. And my advice to you is, go do something. But let that feeling come with you. It, it's So it's the ampersand, it's the and between these two things. It's not an either or. You're not saying, I'm either feeling this feeling of awfulness or I'm doing fun things and watching TV and hanging out with friends. Instead, your life is now going to be about and. I'm going to take that feel, I'm going to go hang out with my friends and have that feeling. I'm going to go watch TV and have, feel that pit in my stomach. 
the pit in your stomach, the anxiety, that sense of guilt and shame, it will never, ever stop you from doing anything. It'll be an annoyance, I'll give you that. But when we say, it's going to come with me, it can be part of my experience, it sucks, but it's not a hindrance, it won't stop you. And when we allow ourselves to go feel something else, allow ourselves the opportunity to go get involved with something else, that we show our brain this feeling isn't going to get my full attention. In fact, in this case, it's not going to get any of my attention. It's just going to be there. And that's not going to be the one that really is going to get my focus. It's these other ones that I want to put my attention on because I like those. I wanted those. So I'm going to go get those. But if this one's going to come with me for a short period of time, that's the one that's going to come with me for a short period of time. And eventually I know my brain is going to get bored with it and it's going to go away. So, so Lynn, I hope this helps to direct or give you some insight into what you can do with that feeling. Um, but uh, but I, I, I will say I apologize for the normies out there who are saying just let it go. I apologize if I am one of those normies who has made it feel like you should just let it go. Um, it's not fair. It's not fun. Um, it's uh, not compassionate. But um, sometimes we say that to people. And sometimes we all make mistakes. So, um, uh, but I hope that this answer has been uh, helpful in giving you some guidance on what you can do. So, all right, on to your next question. So this next question. So if individuals with OCD have a hard time handling discomfort and letting go seems impossible with an endless urgency to, quote, figure it out and need certainty and find answers, what is the actual cause? What causes individuals with OCD to stay stuck, whereas the average person can just simply move on? Is there an answer to this? Well, I mean, Lynn, ultimately, this is the magic question in OCD treatment, right? If we could figure out exactly this we could, medically speaking, eliminate OCD. Now, they are working on this. They are trying to figure out what they can do. And I should have a researcher in on here to talk about uh, to talk about that. I'm going to write a little note to myself to try to get that researcher exactly in to the podcast next. So, um, but there, so there are a couple of things working, uh, uh, working against those with OCD. Now, uh, again, with OCD, there's going to be this, quote, nature and nurture side to it, right? There is a uh, there is a biological component to it, and there is going to be a behavioral component to it. So it's not just the, the, the brain structures you have. It's not like someone with OCD's brain is broken. It's just that there are some structures in it that aren't working as it, quote, ought to, or in a, the most effective and functional way. But there is also a, a behavioral component to it where there is, uh, there, there is either a series of ways that one has responded to their fears or to the systems that they have, they've got going on, uh, or they've just experienced a significant amount of perhaps trauma or perhaps experiences in their life that are that have compounded some of the uh, some of the uh, various issues that are leading towards a diagnosis of OCD. I hope that made any sense. But I know I've talked a lot about the behavioral components to this, but I'll talk a little bit about the the brain structure and components of this. And within the brain, so you said what what causes this, right? Uh, the, the difference between essentially, essentially, it's kind of that question of like, why is it that someone with OCD gets stuck and someone who doesn't have OCD can just kind of like 
move on, right? Well, there, there are three brain structures that are actually problems here that are all working together to make this even worse. So those are the orbital cortex, the cingulate gyrus, and the caudate nucleus. Now, just very briefly, and I'm not a neurologist, I'm not a brain scientist, so if I mess this up, I apologize. But you can think about this is that the, the orbital cortex is the, the part of your brain that notices, that notifies you when something has gone wrong. So it's kind of that initial alarm bell. Now, someone with OCD has an overactive orbital cortex. So that kind of system can be on even when there is nothing wrong. Now, they've, again, they've done research on this to illustrate how this is happening. But think about that the, for someone with OCD, that alarm may be on when, that, when there isn't anything wrong. So that uh, the, the orbital cortex then works along with the cingulate gyrus. What this part of your brain does is it, it's it's where motivation and behavioral responses come from. So it's the part of you that makes you feel that discomfort and the anxiety until that mistake or that problem is fixed. So you can think about it, I suppose, as the orbital cortex is the alarm bell and the cingulate gyrus is that part of you that feels that awful feeling, right? Now, both of those together are very inspirational, I suppose, if we want to use a positive term on it, but it... it gets you up and moving, right? It gets you to go and try to change the problem. So here's the downside though. Yeah, you've got those feelings and within the average person, they might feel that it might, it might be working fine. But the problem is for someone with OCD is that that is there and their rational brain says, there's nothing wrong. And you've told yourself this a bajillion times. You've looked around and talked to your friends and tried to get um, cer uh, certainty and reassurance that nothing's wrong. And yet you can't turn that part off. So the other part of the brain that is also uh, conspiring against you is something called the caudate nucleus excuse me, the caudate nucleus. What this is doing is that this is the part of the brain that would allow somebody to shift gears when they recognize that there's nothing wrong. So I, 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 I like this example from a website I was looking at that, that was talking about the caudate nucleus, and it kind of described it as, um, like, let's say somebody, uh, somebody gets in their car and leaves for work and realizes they left something at home for work that they really needed. Now, they might be halfway on their drive or maybe even all the way at work. Now, they realize that they need this thing and it's going to be a problem. So perhaps their orbital cortex and cingulate gyrus are going off and saying, you messed up, something's wrong, this is not going to go well. So they might feel that anxiety and they had that notification in their mind. But perhaps this person doesn't have OCD. Now, they might sit there and, and use their rational brain and say, well, like, all right, I... I need that, but it's not going to be the end of the world. So I don't really need to worry about this. So they are able to shift their brain and, and move it over, move it, move their attention over to something else. That's the caudate nucleus, right? And again, it, it, this is the part of the brain that allows you to switch gears and to override that kind of wrong and worry process right? The something's wrong and worry process. Now, that that aspect of, of someone's brain with OCD isn't as functional or isn't as effective as someone who does not have OCD. So you can see how these three systems are working together against you. Now, that being said, it, I will say it's not the end of the world because the best, the, the one thing that you can do is you can always control what your responses are. Now, the caudate nucleus for someone is going to be able to be able to easier shift your attention and kind of 
kind of unstuck. I know you hear people talk about uh, obsessions being sticky or one thought being more sticky than the other. Um, the, the, the book Brainlock, the classic OCD book Brainlock, I think ultimately describes this. It, it, it has an illustration of the book. It's kind of like it's a, it's a record groove. This shows you the age of the book or the author or myself, um, where it has a record groove where you know there's a needle, this needle going on it, but it kind of gets stuck in the, in the one groove and can't really get out. Now, if you know anything about needles is that or you know anything about the record needles is that it, it needs this smooth groove to keep to keep itself playing and if there's a, a an error in it it will just go over that same loop over and over and over again and that's kind of what's happening when a thought gets stuck or sticky so that would be that would be one of the biological parts of this now as i've mentioned in some of my previous um, answers even today is that one of the behavioral things is that where you are placing your attention on where you're placing your attention what you're placing your attention on is going to influence what your brain also thinks is dangerous so it's probably going to be influencing the legitimate or it's going to be legitimizing the orbital cortex and the cingulate gyrus part of your brain so when we progressively start to treat those alarms as if they are not problems, we do slowly start to show our brain that those alarm systems aren't working. So we are essentially, we are actively doing what the caudate nucleus ought to be doing. So... Um, so that would be some of the some of the reasons why, uh, or some of the reasons that would be different between someone with with OCD and someone who does not, and why someone with OCD then gets stuck more than the average person. So, hope that answers your question. So I'll just move very quickly on to the next question. The next question is relatively short is, do you need to know what the core fears are in order to stop ruminating? Or does trying to figure out what the core fears are lead to even more rumination? So um, the core fear if to to many people's theory about how to treat OCD, and I think this is also the, the more predominant way to view this, is there is an idea that there is a core fear within the constellation of someone's anxiety. So it can be, it can be the core fear that we're not getting to be able to handle anxiety or not be able to handle the stressors and struggles of a moment. For some, it might be the idea that they're going to be feeling uh, awful forever. It might be the idea that they're that maybe at their the core fears that they are just a dangerous or a bad person. Now, compulsions are then going to be done in the service of that. They're going to be done in response to it. All compulsions then are, are done to try to make sure that that bad thing or that core fear is not going to happen. So if someone's fears that they're just this awful, terrible person, all compulsions are going to be done to try to make sure that they're not going to do something violent or harm somebody, or that they're going to prove that they are indeed a good person, right? So, um, so it can be, I, I'll say this, it can be incredibly helpful to know to know what the core fear is now sometimes for some the core fear can be elusive and it can be difficult to try to get down to and for some people the that can lead to just more and more rumination to try to get this epiphany or this like aha moment where all of a sudden now we know exactly what it is so therefore we know exactly what to do to quote fix the problem now Part of that process is also illuminating perhaps what the core fear is, but for some people, it's also just we, we in treatment, like if I'm working with someone and we're just going you know, in a loop of trying to find this core fear, 
then we need to just still accept what the uncertainty is that we may never find it and then may, therefore we, we may never get better. And we have to sit with that fear. And that's a scary, uncomfortable place to be, especially for someone who's coming and paying for therapy, right? But, but going over and over and just ruminating about this is part of the problem. So do you need to know what the core fear is in order to stop ruminating? I'd say, I'll say no. At the end of the day, no, you don't. What you do need to do is be aware of what compulsions you're doing, meaning what behaviors you're doing to try to eliminate anxiety. And you need to do a hard stop on those as best you can. Even if you never figured out what that quote, quote, core fear is, if you are eliminating these unnecessary compulsive behaviors, you can effectively overcome OCD. So now that is a very broad brush in my description of that. So I hope that was helpful. All right. So this is Lynn's last question, everybody. So buckle up. Here we go. It's a little bit longer, but we'll, we'll get through it. Do you find it's best to keep busy? Because if you don't have distractions, it's easier to ruminate and it can make OCD symptoms worsen. Or is distraction a compulsion? I'm finding I need a lot of distractions. Otherwise, I tend to spend more time in my head and I can easily spend hours going over a real event trying to figure it out, which makes me try to change the past or worry about the future and not in the moment with my fears. And not in the moment, but then... And not in the moment, but then my fears, social anxiety, can sometimes make me not want to do certain things for fear of failure or judgment. Should I do them anyways? I know OCD and anxiety wants to keep us stuck in this loop, and then also depression can set in. It's a vicious cycle. All right, so Len, I know this question kind of meanders a little bit, but um, but the first point about distractions and keeping busy. So for some, so, so yeah, yes and no. So keeping busy for some people is going to be an incredibly helpful tool for them um, to prevent them from uh, from ruminating. When I often work with teachers or people who have uh, the summers off, gosh, they hate the summer breaks. They hate winter breaks because they're not working. So therefore, it's all this time just to ruminate. So they end up just hating that time. But that being said, some people on the opposite end of the spectrum say they constantly need to be busy and they can't allow themselves to have any downtime whatsoever because, as you pointed out, you'll get stuck in these ruminative cycles. So the answer is not always be busy, but the answer is not, is not also avoid being busy right? So distractions are a helpful tool. Now, they can go in the compulsive route if you're not careful with them. But being busy can be very beneficial in terms of you getting your brain and your energies involved with things that you actually care about and want to do, like hobbies or your job or your relationships, things like that, in, more positive, in a more positive and kind of uh, a life-giving kind of way. If you're getting involved with those so that you don't have obsessions, that'd be distraction in an inappropriate way. But if if you say, gosh, you know what? I could sit here and organize or clean or um, research, I don't know, research serial killers again, or I could go out and do some yard work or I can go call up a friend. But here's the thing. I'm going to go hang out with my friend or I'm going to go to that yard work and maybe feel that feeling of, uh, of, of urgency to go fix it. 
or I'm going to go hang out with my friend and still worry about whether or not I'm going to eat their face and not in that makeout kind of way, but like legitimately Hannibal Lecter style eating their face. Um, and I, I want to go online and just to make sure that I'm not that, but I don't know. But being being friends with this person and hanging out with them is is more important to me than sitting in my room and researching the same thing for the seven millionth time. So, a weird example, I know, but it's to say you can go do other things to let your brain get involved with that, but we're going to bring on the anxiety and let that thought hang out and kind of dwell and kind of shift in and shift out for the time that you're going and doing that meaningful thing. And eventually that thought is going to pass. But again, provided we allow that thing to pass for shoving it out of our head, it's ultimately unhelpful and that's an inappropriate distraction. So to the point about you saying that you kind of get up in your head regarding social anxiety and start thinking about the past and the future and what you did or what you may have done, and that prevents you from going and doing social things, well, go do social things. Make that an exposure. Actively go seek out that fear, right? Go be social and maybe get caught. Let yourself maybe potentially be at the possibility at the risk of getting caught for all those terrible things that you may or may not have ever done, right? So is it a distraction? Yes. To go hang out with your friends is a distraction. Is it exposure? Yes. Is it helping you to, is it helping distract you and get your mind off of that rumination? Hopefully, yes. Hopefully you are not then just spending time with friends and using that as this constant reassurance time so that, you know, you're evaluating like, okay, the, you know, that person smiled at me, so they're probably not mad at me for that thing I did three years ago. Okay. Oof, good. So, Notice there that you're bringing compulsions into this relationship. So you're, you're bringing in the thing that you ought not to be doing and the thing that's ultimately unhelpful into this relationship because then you're not in the moment you're comparing to four years ago in this fictitious moment, obviously. But it's that if that thought is there, that's fine. You can, you're going to have all sorts of thoughts where you're hanging out with your friends. But go hang out with your friends in that moment if that's something that feels more uh, uh, enjoyable to you than thinking about the past for the thousandth time. It can be difficult to give yourself that motivation to go do that hard thing, but it gets easier when you push yourself and do it over and over and over again, provided you are also then leaving, leaving the active participation with that thought to the side and saying, all right, if that thought is there, that's fine. But I'm going to go hang out with my friends. That's the that's my where I'm placing my active energy. But I'm not going to get sidetracked by this other thought, even though gosh, it is distracting. I'm going to just notice it that that it's there, and then casually redirect my attention towards my friends. Right? You can use those moments as exposures too. Right? If that worry is that they're going to they're going to catch me for that thing that I did, go yeah, man. I they totally are. And, and they're going to defriend me right now. They're all going to get together and they're just going to get on their phones and, t and remove me from all the social media. And they're just going to look at me square in the eyes and say, we know what you did. And that's awful. You're awful. And we don't want to be around you anymore, Lynn, ever. And you know what? No one should ever want to be around you. We hope that because of that thing that you did, you never have any friends, social interaction, uh, success, and we hope that you die alone, sad and guilty for the things that you did. And then you can hang out with your friends, right? And we'll see what happens. And you can tag that with, well, probably, right? And then go hang out with them and see if it happens. And when nothing happens, go, 
You know that thing? Nothing happened. Well, maybe next time. That's fine. But I'm going to go hang out with them, and I'm going to schedule to go hang out with them again. And I'm going to go do it because I'm not going to let that fear of that potential tell me what I can and can't do. So, uh, Lynn, these are just potential examples of things that you can do. I hope this has been beneficial um, thus far. I'm looking and that seems to be all of your questions at this moment. So uh, hopefully these were uh, helpful for you. Hopefully these answers, everybody, were, were helpful for you, even if you are not Lynn. So thank you again for those questions. All right, everybody, thank you for making it through all this episode of Lynn's Questions. Um, gosh, Lynn, thank you so much again for your vulnerability to message those questions to me. And I hope I treated them well. I hope that uh, those answers were in informative and helpful in pointing you in the right direction of some things that you could do. Uh, Lynn, what I'll also obviously say is that uh, uh, if you have further questions about this, uh, you should go meet with a therapist if you're not already meeting with one. If you are meeting with a therapist, take all of this that I have mentioned and I want you to then go and, and take these if, the, if it if it butts up against what they're doing even if it's not chat with them about the responses and to see if it jives with what their approach is and I'll say this to anybody else out there if you hear something that I say on this podcast and go gosh you know my therapist my OCD specialist has said uh, something different go take this information in there to them and say hey uh, this ridiculous therapist on the podcast said this what do you think about this and they're either going to say you know that's a really good idea or they're going to say you know that doesn't jive well with the approach and the direction that we're going in for this specific reason so don't just jump on what i say as if i'm your therapist because I'll, I'll reiterate this everybody i am not your therapist I am a therapist who's just trying to give informative uh, examples and some potential uh, ideas for what might be beneficial for you in therapy. But if you have questions about it, uh, go visit a therapist and start working with them. And to that point, everybody, if you have questions about recovery, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com and go to the, over to the find help link. And there's going to be some stuff up there that might be able to help point you in the right direction for finding a therapist. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll tag it here with, um, please remember everybody that the Fearcast is not substitute for psychotherapy. Um, and uh, but again, everybody, uh, if you have questions that you would like me to discuss on a future episode, you can go to fearcastpodcast.com and send a message to me over there. Or again, message it to me over at uh, Instagram, and uh, I'll message you back and uh, and ask if, if or ask for permission to post it as well. And um, uh, I, I'd be more than happy to put that up in the future. So, thank you, everybody. I hope everybody is doing well. Hope everybody continues to be healthy. And um, remember, until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.